The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the web. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank. Mari's a local attorney and certified information privacy professional. She's the author of several books, including Safeguard Your Identity, From Victim to Victor, and The Complete Idiot's Guide to Recovering from Identity Theft. And you may have seen her on Dateline, 48 Hour, CNN, NBC, ABC, O'Reilly Factor, and many other shows, including her own 90-minute PBS television special, Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. To learn more about this radio show and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org slash privacypiracy. Hey, Mari, what's our show about today? Well, Lloyd, our show is about the Privacy Rights Clearinghouse. And you know that we have had Beth Givens on many times. In fact, ever since we've had this show for the past five years, Beth has been one of our very favorite guests. And she is really the top privacy person in the country. And we're so thrilled that she's joining us. For those of you who haven't heard her before, let me tell you about her background. Beth Givens is the founder and director of the Privacy Rights Clearinghouse, a nonprofit advocacy, research, and consumer education program in San Diego, California. The Privacy Rights Clearinghouse maintains a complaint information hotline on informational privacy issues, and she has testified on privacy, public policy concerns before the U.S. Senate, the California Legislature, the California Public Utilities Commission, the Federal Trade Commission, and the U.S. Controller of the Currency. And she's been a member of numerous task forces examining privacy-related issues, and I could go on and on, but we have so much about her on our website that you can find at KUCI.org slash privacy piracy. And I want you to look there and just see all the tremendous things that she's done. And we're so thrilled that you're with us today, Beth. Thank you. Well, thanks, Murray. So, Beth, why don't you tell a little bit more about how that Privacy Rights Clearinghouse came into being? I think that's really a fascinating story. Yeah, actually, we started in 1992. That's 18 years ago. And that's before privacy was a big issue. Um, there was a grant program that was kind of u- uniquely California called the Telecommunications Education Trust, and a bunch of us were sitting around a, a, a conference table brainstorming, well, what, what should we do a project on? And one of the attorneys in the room uh, said, well, I think privacy is going to be the next big consumer issue. And he was, uh, I'd say, a, a futurist on that because privacy just wasn't an issue at that time. And, of course, the Internet really wasn't in use for the majority of people. That didn't get going until later in the 90s. So uh, we, but we started, and we had just a, a telephone hotline at that time, an 800 number, and, and we were only available in California. But when we launched, uh, we had a press conference. There were some radio and TV um, news segments about us. The phone rang off the hook. Really, I was just astounded at how many calls we got. And we were at the University of San Diego uh, Center for Public Interest Law at that time, and we used law students as the staffers on the hotline. They also helped us write our very first fact sheets that, that you mentioned in your introduction. And um, it was really kind of amazing. Um, I didn't think that we would start off with such a splash, but we, what we really did. And what kind of topics were really the big thing at that time when you, when you were getting those calls? Well, credit reports were big, and, and well, they're still big today. But the big ones then that aren't as, as prominent for us today were junk mail and telemarketing. Uh, just a lot of people upset about the fact that they couldn't really 
control what came into their home you know, postal box and, 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 and the phone calls they were getting. Also, uh, people complained a lot about Social security numbers, and that also is an issue for us today, the fact that, you know, people are requested, in fact, required to give their social security numbers in so many situations. Uh, and medical records privacy was, was in the top five then as well. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah, I didn't think about that. I know back in 1996, that's when you and I met, and I called you because I had found your website, and it was the only website that I could find with identity theft issues. And I remember calling you and you were just wonderful. But that started to become an issue about that time in the in the mid-90s, late-90s, wasn't it? Yes, it did. In, in fact, identity theft, mid-90s for us. In fact, I remember your call very, very, very well. Uh, you had, I remember you, you said you had stayed up all night searching on the web and, and you found our site. And our site would have been quite new then. So I'm really glad you found it. <laughs> it was uh, it was a divine meeting for good friendship <laughs> for all these years since that time. And look at, look at how much has gone on and how much has changed. Yeah, amazing. What are the biggest topics right now that you see on your website and people well, calling? Well, yeah, and, and in calls and email messages as well. I think you might be kind of surprised at what our number one topic is. Uh, so I'm not going to keep you guessing. Believe it or not, it's employment background checks, not only in terms of the, the, search, the search phrases that people use to, um, on our website, but also the page hits. Uh, we have uh, several guides on employment background checks, and they are the tops in terms of the, the number of page hits that we get uh, per day, per week, per month. So, uh, uh, and that's an area where we, I think we are quite unique in the country. We, we've been on this issue actually since uh, later in, in the 90s. Um, but of course, we'll get into it a little bit more later maybe, but it, there are a lot of issues involved with now what's available on the internet with, with employment screening. Um, but another big one for us is, believe it or not, harassing phone calls. Mm-hmm. People have such a hard time, especially on their cell phones, um, getting rid of calls that they just don't want to receive. And uh, there's, you know, there's some tools you can use on your landline. But when it comes to cell phones, um, that industry isn't actually as uh, robust in terms of the tools they give their customers for uh, blocking calls that people don't want to receive um, and that sort of thing. Yeah. And, you know, I think it's going to be really scary when you start seeing how these um, telephone companies are now going to let you, like, buy things with your cell phone, that really scares me because I don't think you're going to be covered by any of the laws like the Fair Credit Billing Act. Mm. And I just think that that's so dangerous. I, I would never, ever do that till some new laws come up. But I, I, think- I totally agree with you. I know in other countries you can walk up to, say, a, a soda machine, a uh, soft drink machine, and just place your phone right next to a certain area of the, the machine and the soft drink comes out and you're automatically, uh, you know, debited uh, on an account for, for that purchase. Yeah. And then what kind of recourse do you have if somebody else had your phone and did that? Or, you know, I mean, all sorts of horrible things come up and I think that is what's going to happen. I think we're going to, that's going to be a whole nother show that you and I are going to talk about. I, I think you're right. <laughs> it's it's going to be an area of consumer protection that we're you know, there's going to have to be an infrastructure, kind of a legal infrastructure built around that. And, of course, more consumer education as well. Yes. And I really like the fact that, you know, back when the Fair Credit Billing Act was created, that was a time that consumers really had a lot of power. And that's why if you use your credit card, 
you're never going to be responsible for any fraud. And it's very, you know, you're very well protected actually using your credit card. But if you use your phone to make a purchase, you don't have that bill for a credit billing act for the credit card industry. To right. Protect the, other, you. the other thing is, is people may not pay very close attention to that phone bill when it comes in. Exactly. It's I hard know, enough I, to I, read. I generally don't unless it's just outrageously high and it looks different from the previous bill. And I think they're harder to read even than a credit card bill. I, I would agree with you. They're very complicated. Right. So, you know, your site, the Privacy Rights Clearinghouse, has online privacy fact sheets as well, which I think mm-hmm. are wonderful. And they talk about Internet safety, which is great. Mm-hmm. So what, you know, we were talking a minute ago about background checks. And to be honest, the, I am not surprised because I get a lot of calls telling me, you know, people who have their victims of identity theft who had background checks that weren't them, you know, and then right. they didn't get the job or they got fired or they couldn't get the promotion or whatever. So it made a lot of sense that that happens. But what kinds of online activities really do reveal people's personal information? Well, actually, there are quite a few. And, and um, first off, just plain signing up for internet for, the, for an internet service. Um, I think most people these days know that their computer has a unique address. It's called an IP address. It's a series of numbers divided up by dots. Um, and in most, you know, internet service providers or ISPs uh, do work to protect your privacy. But each one has its own privacy policy. And, and even though I know people don't like to read privacy policies, it, it really is important that people pay attention. To, to those things, but also, you know, electronic mail. I mean, who doesn't use email these days? Exactly. Um, and and uh, the unfortunate thing is that the the only law we have in this area, the Electronic Communications Privacy Act, is, is actually quite old. And it's I'm not going to get into it because, um, quite frankly, it, it's so complex that, that I think you probably need a, a room full of attorneys on your show to explain <laughs> it. Right. But uh, uh, it's just not... Uh, doesn't provide very much protection. We've got, you know, what, what things have happened with the USA Patriot Act. And, and, and of course, uh, your, email, your email can be subpoenaed for um, civil cases as well as criminal. So they're just, it, uh, I don't think there's a great deal of uh, protection for your communications by email. Um, and then, of course, you know, who knows what happens when you send your email to whoever it is you're sending it to. They, they could very well uh, send it to uh, people that you certainly had no intention of of communicating with. So that you know that's email, and there's it's just a whole bunch of issues with privacy and email. Um, one, actually, let me just bring up one right now because there's webmail. A lot of people will use a webmail. Gmail is tremendously popular, but there's also you know Yahoo and, and some Hotmail, which is a Microsoft service. Um, Gmail, which uh, is is a Google service actually scans the content of your messages for keywords that you use, like, oh, I can hardly wait, I'm going golfing this weekend uh, to a great new you know, resort that's not far from where I live. Well, you know what? You might start getting ads based on the fact that you discussed golfing in your email messages. Um, and when this service, Gmail, first came out and we learned that uh, those Communications, and, and I consider communication to be, frankly, uh, uh, almost, you know, almost holy, I to say it, but communication between people to me are, are very, very um, sacrosanct. And, and the thought of, of those typed words being scanned by a machine and then you get ads based on what you're talking about, to me that just seems so wrong. It's so but invasive. It really is, but you know what? Uh, it just 
didn't get a lot of attention, and it still doesn't. Gmail is so incredibly popular. Well, that's because it's free. It's free, and they've got a lot of great features. I hate to say it. Yeah. Um, uh, in fact, interestingly, we, we uh, hired a, a new staff person last summer, and every single applicant, I mean every single one, was using Gmail. Yep. But anyway, so that, that's, that's just one issue. Um, uh, browsers, uh, you've got Microsoft Internet Explorer, you've got Firefox, uh, Apple has Safari, and Google now has Chrome. Um, your browsers provide your IP address and uh, information about the sites that you've visited to uh, website operators. Um, there's a whole issue of cookies. I mean, you can change your settings to restrict cookies and improve your privacy, but if you choose a higher privacy setting, when you go to do to check your, your, your bank account balance, you, you actually may not be able to get onto, um, onto the bank's uh, website. Right, because um, they don't recognize you. Yeah. Yeah, but, but anyway, one thing that you can look for in your browser is something called private browsing, a, a tool that enables you to increase your privacy. But I think you, you have to realize that if you crank it up high, there may be some services and websites that won't let you on, and then you have to go in and crank it down a little bit in order to take care of that specific uh, transaction. Right. So you're darned if you do and you're darned if you don't. Yeah. <laughs> well, it, it also brings up something that I say often, that it, it, it really takes a lot of time, attention, and knowledge to be a good privacy manager, to, to, to manage your own privacy. And, um, and, and some and people that's, just that's give up. It's yeah. a sorry state of affairs, yeah. I mean, some people just say, well, I want to do it, but it's just so much work. It's so time-consuming. It's overwhelming, it and then they give up. Well, it, it is, and, and who, yeah, who has the time, really? Um, I mean, I know people who actually take the time, but, but they're, they, they've just exhaustively researched their options, and they've built that time into their daily lives. I mean, I know someone who once a week goes in and just checks everything out, checks the various settings, updates all of the software programs that he has on his computer, uh, both at home and at the office, and just make sure that everything's up to snuff and he's uh, blocking, you know, all the latest uh, scam words and, and all of that. So, yeah, it, 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 it is quite a daunting task. And it's um, so unfortunate because, you know, and I know you think like, like I do, and I've learned a lot of this from you, Beth, is that, you know, we really need to have it the opposite. In other words, we should be able to opt into these things given a choice of whether we want everybody to be surveilling us on the internet and whether we want everybody to be able to collect these cookies or these pieces of information about us. But we don't have that. There's no laws in place really that give us that opportunity. Almost everything is opt out and that takes the time. Well, and that's why our website is so huge and that's why we have more than 50 uh Five, five zeros. I know it sounds like 15, but it's 50 yeah. guides. Uh, basically, we're telling people about all of these different opt-out options. Yes. And um, there is just a lot to know and a lot to do. Um, but anyway, I, you, you asked me about the Internet. Let me, let me go to the really important issue. Okay. That's, that's search engines. Right. Um, you know, we, we know of Google because that's the industry, the market leader. There's Yahoo, and, and now there's a relatively new one called uh, Microsoft Bing. Um, and I think we all probably navigate the Internet by using these search engines, but um, they can record your IP address uh, and certainly the search terms that you use, the time of day of your search, um, you know, the amount of time, uh, the various uh, places that you visit, um, you know, and, and, and uh, they can retain. In fact, they do retain this kind of data. 
They claim it is to, to do research on the kinds of searches people make and so that they can provide better services. And they also claim, well, we need to, you know, uh, ward off any security threats and we, we, we need to keep people from gaming the search ranking results. Uh, we need to combat click fraud, of course, which determines how much money advertisements can bring in. Um, and in a, some, some cases, these um, uh, search engines have been keeping data for well more than a year. Um, now they've, they've been reducing the time. I think Bing uh, is six months. Google, I think the latest they've said is nine months to retain this data. Yahoo is 90 days. Um, but I wanted to, to tell your listeners about a uh, search engine called Start Page, S-T-A-R-T Page. used to be called Ixquick, and it comes out of um, Europe, out of the, the Netherlands. And uh, they don't save those things. In fact, um, they're probably the most privacy-friendly of, of all um, of, of, the, uh, of the search engines. And then you, your listeners might want to just take a look at, at StartPage. Well, is that because they're part of the European Union and the European Union does value the individual privacy more than we do? Well, I think so. I, 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 it's interesting that a, a search engine like that would emanate from a European country and, and, and not from the U.S. I think that's a, a, probably a very big part of that. Um, but anyway, to continue on about about the internet and what it knows about you, there, there's also cookies, and these are little pieces of of data that are sent by the web server to your browser, and they might contain useful information like your login or your registration data. So the next time you you go onto that same website, you they know you and they'll say hi, Beth, welcome back. Um, uh, Sometimes I find that annoying, but some people find it quite convenient. Um, they, they might they might save, uh, for example, a, a bookseller, an online bookseller might save information on the books you've read or at least the types of books you've read so that when you return, they greet you by name and say, well, you might be interested in these books. And right. Whenever I, go, yeah, whenever I go on Amazon, they go, here's another privacy book for you, right, Marie. Right, right. <laughs> Well, the funny thing is, you know, my, I, I have a relative who loves dogs, and I sometimes buy her dog books. I don't have dogs, but of course now, now of course this particular bookseller th- thinks thinks that I have just you know a house full of dogs, and I get all kinds of uh, of suggestions on that, which which is okay because I'm always looking at new gift ideas. But, but I'm sure your cats. Let, wait let a minute, get, but get, Beth, I'm sure your cats don't like that though. No, no, they get real <laughs> jealous about things like that. <laughs> but let's talk a little bit about third party cookies. Yes. And these are the ones that basically communicate information or data about you to an advertising clearinghouse, which, and that clearinghouse in turn shares that data with other online marketers. Um, and uh, you, can, you can delete these, you can delete third party cookies, but when you start deleting cookies, um, one of the downsides is, downsides is that it reduces that convenience factor. If you're really a strong privacy advocate, you know, you, you're okay. I think people are okay with giving up the convenience factor. But remember when I said, you know, the, the website that says, hi, Beth, when, when I return, um, that's because of cookies. Yes. Yeah. But uh, you, you can go cookies. in. You can yeah. go in and actually, like, on, at least on mine, I can go in and, and delete certain cookies and keep certain cookies. But that yes. takes a long time, too. You can't just delete them all. But, like, I keep Bank of America. That's my bank. And right. so I want them to be able to do it, or I'll keep Amazon. So you can go in and, and get rid of the cookies that you don't want and keep the ones you do. But, it, again, it's a time factor. It is. And, and, and that's a good segue into kind of this more persistent cookie called a flash cookie. And 
it's much more persistent than the other types of cookies that I've been talking about. Um, you just mentioned going in and re- erasing the, the, the standard cookies, clearing your his- history, erasing the cache or, or uh, deleting um, certain options within the browser. But all of this doesn't affect flash cookies, and these may hang on uh, despite all your efforts to delete these various cookies. Um, there is in, in a browser called Firefox uh, an add-on called Better Privacy, and apparently that's quite useful in assisting you in deleting these flash cookies. So at least there's there's one uh, tool out there for for flash cookies. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> it it just I get tired just thinking about all these things that I have to do. <laughs> Let me tell. Well, yeah. it's true, and you know. Uh, there's recently been a book written uh, on just the whole notion of, of deleting and and how it's it's really an important feature to be built into all of these services, but it's kind of been an afterthought. And I think that's going to become a bigger issue is, you know, your right to delete. Um, there's also your right, the portability right, your right to take data from, from one uh, service to another, but that's, that's not really a privacy issue. Uh, but again, I think the right to delete is, is going to be, I think, a bigger and bigger issue as time goes on. Right. We're speaking with a wonderful friend of mine who I honor, and I think she's wonderful. She is my very favorite privacy expert and the first one I ever met many, many years ago. We're speaking with Beth Givens, who's the founder and director of the Privacy Rights Clearinghouse, which is a nonprofit advocacy, research, and consumer education program located in beautiful San Diego, California. They have over 50 very, very comprehensive fact sheets. You can also read many of Beth's wonderful writings and her speeches, and you can find those at privacyrights.org. Beth, so we were talking about all the ways that, you know, uh, online activities reveal information about you. Let's talk a little bit about social networking. Do you have some tips for people? Because here we are on the campus, right? And everybody and their brother is doing social networking. And of course, now that Alyssa is working for me, I do have a face page and I do, I'm doing some Twitter and I'm Mm. following in your direction with the Twitter. Mm -hmm. And so I'm, I'm, you know, doing all these things that are scaring me to death. Um, But do you have any tips for people regarding social networking? Yeah, I do. Uh, and you're right. Many people who use social networks are they're really not considering the privacy implications, but they really should, um, because there are lots of people bef- besides your friends who are interested in the information that you would post on social networks. I mean, of course, there's identity thieves, especially the more sophisticated ones who are you know trying you know they're targeting one person and then picking up as much information as they can so that they can perpetrate really sophisticated scams on them. And then there are just, you know, all kinds of various scam artists, but also, you know, debt collectors like like to use that information. Employers are using that information. Um, and, of course, let's not forget stalkers. Um, in addition, there are corporations, businesses, who are looking for market advantage um, and using social networks to, to pick up information about individuals. Um, and then, of course, there are the social network companies themselves. They, they collect a, a variety of data about their own users so that they can personalize the service and also sell information to advertisers. But um, I'm getting back to employers because I think many people uh, would be horrified to, to know that uh, the employer that they've just applied to is likely to go on and, and see if that individual has uh, information on, on their social network pages that, that is not hidden behind privacy settings. 
Um, so be careful what you post and, and just uh, learn everything you can and take advantage of all of those privacy settings. Um, I read, uh, oh, it was a story a couple of months ago about a man who clocked himself. He And he went in, I think it was probably on Facebook, and to, tried to set up uh, a, a very, very strong um, set of privacy uh, settings for for himself. And he, he, t- he said it took him an hour. Yeah. It's not easy. It's complicated. Uh, we have a social networking expert on our staff, and, and uh, she can tell you all the ins and outs of all of that. But, um, you know, think about who's going to see all this stuff that you post, including photographs. Um, could be a potential employer. could be a current employer who doesn't like what he or she is seeing. It could be that landlord and you're trying to get an apartment. Um, so, you know, you've got. Uh, how about the scholarship committee? You're going off to college and, and you, you want to get a scholarship or you're, you're going off to grad school. You have to think about all of these things. Exactly. And especially you were saying that so many of the calls that you get are with background checks. Right. And even though we have certain laws in the state of California and federally that protect, you know, potential employees with background checks, we don't really have any jurisdiction over these social networking sites. And so people can go on these social networking sites and see things about you. And I know for sure I was speaking with an attorney on this show mm. who refused to hire somebody after he saw her social networking oh, website. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, it happens and there's yeah. no way around it. So I think that's what you're saying is so important. Think about if anybody saw this besides your friends, what could it mean? How could it hurt you? How could it keep you from getting a job or a promotion or getting that scholarship that you're talking about? I think yeah. it's uh, people just don't think about that. They don't. I mean, I keep hearing that as time goes on, uh, societal mores will change and, and employers and, and landlords and, and scholarship committees will become more tolerant. But I really don't, I don't know if that's going to happen. I mean, let's just say you've got a group of, let's say, of five finalists for a job, and they're all more or less equal in terms of their skills, their, their, their background, the number of years they've worked, their, you know, their administrative, whatever. If you've got one of those who's got some kind of sketchy social networking posts, um, wild-looking photos, the employer may never admit it, but that person is certainly probably not going to make it to the top two. Right. And they can say that there's some other reason that the other person sure. was more qualified, but you're absolutely right. And so I, you know, I had friend Mayer on the show from trustee and she was oh, saying, sure. you know, we were talking about, cause she has teenagers and we were talking about that. And I said, well, what do you think is going to happen? And she said, well, I think people are going to get more lenient, but I, I, I'm not really with her. I'm more with you. I really think that what we're seeing now happening and what, how people are destroyed, the, their reputations are destroyed on the internet. I, and the need for companies like Reputation Defender, mm-hmm. I just don't think people get more tolerant. I really don't think that they do. I think that they're going to make the choice. Maybe they'll say, oh, wait, that was a stupid thing to do. But it's in their face. It's it's right there. They're looking at the picture, and it just turns them off. Yeah. 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 Well, and it, it could, you know, it, it might even be an unconscious uh, thing as well. But um, I, I do think that that the tolerance factor, maybe it'll get a little better. Uh, especially when somebody, say, is looking at a 30-year-old for a job and there are some things on the Internet that go back to, say, the early 20s. Uh, and they, Yeah, you might get tolerance there, but right. um, you know how tough it is to, just to get a job these days, especially if you're a young person right out of high school or college. You just don't want this kind of, these kinds of images and, and this kind of information to harm your chances. Exactly. And, you know, I, I think this is so important what we're talking about right now because, remember, 
we are on the campus of the University of California, Irvine. So we've got a lot of students here that use social networking all the time. And they, I I just don't think they're thinking of what the ramifications are. So it's so important that you're telling all this really important things, because these are the people that are going to want to go to graduate school. These are the people that are going to want to get those jobs. And so they really need to be very mindful And what's a little bit scary, I think, that even if you take this stuff off your site, who has copied it or who has forwarded it to their friends, you know? And it might not even be what I would put on my website. It might be something that my friend would put on my website. Right. Or not on my website, but on their website about me and have Mm -hmm. my name in it. Like, oh, you know, Beth Givens was out drinking with a bunch of friends last week, you know? (laughs) I mean, what if I put that up, you know? That what I think that is even scary as well, and I don't know what we're going to be able to do about taking that down. You know, I interviewed the CEO of Reputation Defender on the. Mm-hmm. I don't, you know what that is, and I asked him, you know, because he was saying all these things that could go up that someone else puts up about you, and I said, yeah, well, um, even if you delete it off of a particular site, what if it's been replicated? He goes, well, the way we deal with it is we put a bunch of new things on there that um, kind of, you know, eradicate, not eradicate, but kind of override. We do, you know, good reputation information to counteract the bad reputation so that when Google pulls up things, the older stuff goes to the latter pages where people can't see it. And the, um, the newer stuff is up front. And I thought, well, if somebody's really doing research on someone, they're going to look to page 10 or 15 about them, Right. They will, sure. You know, especially if it's something as as intense as a security clearance, exactly. uh, or you're you're being hired as the chief financial officer or the vice president of whatever for a large corporation. Um, yeah, they're not they're not going to stick to the first page, right? So if you know, so that's the problem. Is you know, we could tell you as you're sitting here and you're you know on the campus. You know, I don't put my stuff up. I, you know, anything up there about myself, but someone else does. That that's a problem. I had a call. You would. Just, I don't know if I told you this, Beth. I got a call last week from a mother who um, has a daughter in her 20s, and she got a teaching job, and she found out she was the victim of identity theft, and then she found out it was her ex-boyfriend. So she oh. confronted him, and he said, if you go to the police, I will put up these tapes where we made love on these tapes, oh. and I will put them all over the Internet. And she was terrified of this. And so this was really extortion. And I told the mother, you know, I said, you tell her to call me. You tell her that she has to go to the police. This is extortion. Mm-hmm. You must deal with this. You know, and she said that she already filed bankruptcy. She already has her wages are being attached because oh. she is in such fear. And I said, you know what? This guy's going to hold this above her head the rest of her life. You know, we do. We here actually have heard of a number of such cases, maybe not so extreme as that, but where people are using web content as a form of revenge and yes. getting even. Yes. Um, and and it's it's very hard to deal with. And, and individuals may need to hire an attorney, but they may not have uh, enough money to do that. And, and of, course, of course, then there's the, the First Amendment. And uh, it it's, it's, it's can be a very, very tricky and difficult and a very damaging situation for an individual. Absolutely. And I keep thinking of, you know, Dan Solove's book, the future of reputation on the internet. And we had Dan on this show. And I think that is the, that is probably one of the most frightening things is how your reputation can be ruined on the internet. And it may not have anything to do with you, but it totally ruins your reputation. 
Well, that's so true. And then again, getting back to something I spoke of earlier, when you've got landlords, you've got employers, you've got scholarship committees taking advantage of the ease of doing a search on somebody's name uh, or checking them out on Facebook, um, reputation is a big issue. I I agree with you. I think it's one of the the bigger issues we have today in terms of privacy and the Internet. Mm. So let's kind of switch gears a little bit, and because we are talking about online activity, but let's talk about what happens on online banking. What are your thoughts about this in terms of privacy and security with online banking? Yeah, you know, I have mixed feelings. It's it's very convenient, and um, and and I think people who do online banking really love it. But I do have several tips. Um, you've got to be careful that you're actually dealing with the proper institution. There, there are some very sophisticated scam artists, both here and in other countries, who develop websites that look just like the real, real thing. Um, they, they might uh, draw you in through, say, phishing email messages called phishing messages that sound like they're right from your very own institution, uh, and they send you to a website that looks just like your own bank, but you're actually giving information to, uh, to, to scam artists who've set up a, a very convincing-looking replica. Um, you know, you can always check the privacy policy. Another issue, of course, is marketing. Uh, what sorts of uh, uses does that banking institution, institution make of your, of, of your information? And, and um, most of them, will, the good ones, will offer you an opt-out, and we certainly tell people to take advantage of that. But again, you know, it's advice that probably goes unheeded, but it does pay, it, it, it is important to heed or to read and heed the privacy policy. Um, I can talk about what I do. Uh, I still have not jumped into online banking per se, but I do like the ability to access my account to make sure that maybe a check that, I, that I've just recently um, written, maybe for a larger amount of money, has been cashed, and of course to monitor my balance. And then I get online, and I can also monitor for fraud that way. But in terms of taking that extra step and going with online banking, I'm not yet convinced it's ready for prime time. Um, there are just too many ways that people can get tripped up by, by phishing attacks and other types of fraud um, that, uh, at least for myself, I'm just not ready for it. Right. And I can see your point. I do online banking, and I I have some ideas about trying to be really, really careful myself. I mean, I would never do online banking except from my home computer. That's one mm-hmm. thing. And I make sure that I'm, you know, I've got the router and I've got all these privacy firewalls all around mm-hmm. me. Sure. Sure. I also make sure that I have a very complex uh, password. Okay. That's very right. complex. 12 numbers, letters, figures that I hit. It takes me a long time to memorize it, but I finally memorized it. And um, I also am very careful. I don't use a new, uh, even my username is complex. Mm-hmm. So I do that as well. And then I'm like you in terms of, I'm, I think it's great for fraud because if you're looking at it two to three times a week, you'll see if there's anything that looks strange. So that's really important. Another thing I do is I have my alerts from my bank. So if anything changes, I get an alert from them. Oh, and that's then, good. Yeah, and then I know right away, and I'll go look, and they'll say something like, you know, there was a transfer of blank amount of money or something, and then I go, oh, I know what that is. So then I just delete it. But it helps me to know if there's anything that I don't know, I get that alert in my email. So I see that. The other thing that I know you can relate to is that I don't like to put any checks in the mail because someone can steal the checks anywhere, That's and right. they can create new checks 
and use the routing number and the account number to go to Office Depot, buy some checks, and then siphon the money out of your account. And they don't even have to have your name on the check nor your bank and the money right, still yeah. siphons. So I'm worried about that. And I, so well, I don't like let me, to use... let me just comment on that one yeah. thing because that, that's something I have done as well. I um I think I I think I'm down to the point where I don't write checks to pay bills anymore. I actually um, pay automatically out of my account, and then I just check yes. uh, on my monthly statement. So I I, I consciously make, taken steps to to not send those checks through the mail. So do you do phone banking then? Is that what you do? How do you pay the checks? Like you do it like phone banking? Well, believe it or not, I um, I do an automatic uh, deduction for for paying those. And then I just check my monthly statement. Okay, so this is this is something that I wanted to share with you. I don't like to give my account number to the San Diego Gas and Electric. I don't want to give my account number to all these different companies because I don't know who has access to seeing that account number. So I feel safer paying from my own bank because they already know my account number. Sure, and sure. then I don't have to give it to anybody else because they're paying from that account. So if I do online banking where it's an electronic payment, to American Express or to my gardener or to whomever it is, no one gets the account, the entire account number. So I don't have to worry about them getting that entire account yeah, number. That's, so. that's really good. In fact, we've had some kind of heated debates here in, in the office about sort of what I do versus what you do. And I, I think uh, those in the office who who think like you would say, you know what, giving these account numbers to the to these various companies not a great idea. But so far, I've actually not had a problem. But I, I think well, you're that's right. good. That's good. And and you know, I and I'm kind of like with you. I am worried about phishing. I am worried about hacking. Um, I'm worried about all those things that you're worried about. The, the only good news is because I I look at my account several times a week, and because I get the alerts, if anything did go wrong. I would know it right away, and because I have access to it, I, you know, I mean, we, there's a problem. I mean, there, if if it could happen, it'll happen. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, and you so, know, I, it's it's interesting. I've, I've, many people, especially like newspaper reporters and all, will say, well, Beth, have, have you been a victim of identity theft? You have, you got so much information on your website. Is that was that the catalyst for you getting into this? And I say, I used to say no, but just um, last month, I I learned that. My credit card had been cloned, and thank goodness it was a credit card, by the way. Yes, yes. It, it, and it, somebody in Thailand, believe it or not, had my credit card, at least in terms of all the information you need on the front and the back, mm. and they had used it to buy almost $600 worth of auto parts. Wow. Um, thankfully, it was caught quickly, but, um, but again, the good, yeah. it goes back to the tip. Use a credit card. Don't use a debit card. Right, and you would but, see that right on. You'd see that on your statement too. When your statement comes, you would see that I you didn't buy six hundred dollars worth of, you know, accoutrements for your car. You know, <laughs> in Thailand. In yeah, Thailand. in Thailand. Right, right. You weren't even there. So, I mean, that's the good news is you're never going to be held responsible for it. Now, if it was a debit card, it would have been entirely different. The money would have been siphoned out. It would have been gone. Yes, it would have been gone, and I would have had to have pro- proven that I wasn't the one over there spending that money. And and we've heard some horror stories here about individuals who whose entire banking accounts have been wiped out yes. um, because of fraudulent debit card use. Yes, they got the money back, but they it took in some cases several months for that institution to complete its investigation and say, okay, it really wasn't you. We're giving your money back. I just helped a lady. It went from January until July until I got all of her money back for her. And she wouldn't, they wouldn't give it back to her, but the fact that I got involved. 
Oh my goodness. Yes. Yeah. And it well, she, doesn't surprise me. And and that's why it's so dangerous. She will never use a debit card again. But she she had um reported that the debit card was stolen within a day. Within oh. a day she saw that thirty thousand dollars was taken out of her account and she told them. And we have, you know, documentation of it. But then they said, well, we don't know if that was really you or not. And then they said, we're going to deny your claim because we think it might have been, a, you know, you were a family member. And they and she had a police report. She had everything. Mm. And um, so I, I think part of it was because she was, um, you know, she didn't speak well our language. And mm. I think that didn't help it much. But anyway, she'll never use a debit card again. But it took me six months for her to get that $30,000 back. That's incredible. Yeah, it was really incredible. And that's happened before. So debit cards, you and I are on the same page about debit cards. That's, that's for sure. Yeah. We are speaking with Beth Givens, a dear friend of mine and a really top-notch privacy expert, one of the best in the country. She's the founder and the director of the Privacy Rights Clearinghouse, which is a nonprofit advocacy, research, and consumer education program located in San Diego, California. They have over 50 very comprehensive fact sheets that can help you. We have her speeches there, many, many good, helpful items, letters that you can write to protect your privacy. And you can find that all at privacyrights.org. Speaking of your website, Beth, on your, on your website, you've written about the privacy dilemma of government or public records being posted online. Yeah. Let's talk about some of those key privacy issues regarding this growing trend. Well, this is a growing practice by government agencies, especially at the local and the county levels. Um, I mean, I think most, most counties now will, will have home ownership or property tax assessor file data on the Internet. But there's also registered voter files, uh, business license information, tax liens, um, on the federal level, bankruptcy files, uh, criminal conviction records, um, civil court records, at least uh, the, uh, you know, maybe not the, the whole transcript, but at least, um, you know, the, the date of the, the proceeding and, and, the, and the outcome. Of course, we all know about registered sex offender lists. I have actually, I'm on both sides of the fence on this one. You know, one, yes, we, we are a democracy, and... Um, you know, we the people are basically the government, and it's up to us to keep an eye on our government, and this is one way that we can. On the other hand, I don't think that the founders of our country really had in mind that this notion of, of public records, gov- government records being public, that, that this was meant to be uh, available in, in, well, they didn't know about electronic formats then, but the ability to compile one record with another, with another, with another, and create this very robust profile um, just to give you an example of some of the, the negative things that can happen, and we've, we've gotten some very, very sad stories from individuals. Just heard, heard of one this morning. An individual emailed me, and she was a, a rape victim, um, and she went to the court to get um, victim assistance. You know there are these victim assistance programs right. throughout the country. Um, and in order to do that, she, she just found out by accident, they actually put on, and I actually saw her record, I was so shocked and horrified, but they put on their website, um, or this is a company that went into the court's website and, and extracted the information and then made it public on, on a free site, information with great details about her whole life history, child abuse, mm. her medical conditions, information about the rape herself, oh. um, even her salary, because they were, it was the whole issue of her getting this victim compensation. 
Mm. Um, and it was really horrifying. And, 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 and you know what? The, it, I, looked, I actually looked at it. Um, like, I mean, she gave the information to me. I, I felt it was okay. But you know the, the amount of money she actually got for all of this was $2,000. Oh, my gosh. Uh, and um, so, you know, that's <sighs> the downside. And, and she, she's going to have to go to the court and um, it's too late, though. It's out now. Yes. It, you know, it's on this vendor's website. And we've heard other just awful stories like this of, of the entire court proceeding uh, with all of this very sensitive information being online. And uh, it, you're right. As you said earlier, it, it can destroy lives. Yeah. Did the uh, vendor take down that information when you asked them to or when she asked well, them to? Well, we just learned about it today. So, uh, uh, you know, she she's going to have to probably... Go back to the court, go to the vendor, perhaps even get an attorney and get them to take it down. Oh. But we worked with an individual a couple of weeks ago, and, and the vendor was refusing to take it down. Oh, my gosh. But yeah. um, uh, an interesting, there, there's actually a piece of code that you can add, and the, believe it or not, the vendor was willing to do that, to, to add to the record that makes it so that Google and other search engines can't find it. Oh, really? I mean, no, it, it's still there. So if you, yeah. if you know about it and you, can, you go onto the website or you have a subscription that, with that website, you can find it that way and you have a legitimate interest, you know. But, um, yeah, there, there actually is a, just some information. And this particular vendor was willing to put that code right at the beginning of the file. And uh, he was going to get back to me and tell me if it actually worked. It was going to take oh. a few weeks uh, for him to, to know if it indeed worked. But at least that particular vendor was willing to work with him in that regard. Now, is there a reason why the vendor says they don't want to take it down? Yeah, it's, they, they claim it's public record. Ah, I see. And, and, it, okay. and it will degrade the service we provide. I gotcha. I gotcha. Yeah. This is another thing that, you know, as a mediator, as an attorney and a mediator, I am always telling people, you know, if you can ever, ever keep things out of court, meaning don't file the things, don't even get in there because that is all going to be public record. That's right. And it is just, you know, because people will say anything in a complaint. I mean, they'll make up lies, but they, you know, they have immunity because they're filing out a complaint. So it's very, very dangerous to get into a lawsuit and have these kind of things come up on the internet and, and just allege what they allege even. It's, it's a horrible thing. And, you know, I've been uh, an expert on some cases in which maybe I was the, for the defense, and, and these people are claiming privacy invasions, but the fact that they even ended up in this lawsuit has exposed them more than any of the alleged privacy <laughs> invasions that they That's talked right. about. It just, it's horrible. But I wanted to get back to when you were talking about these government records, and you'll love this one. There was just in the paper about a week ago about how the Franchise Tax Board had over 250 people um, who allegedly owe, now they weren't proven to owe, but they allegedly owe a certain amount of money to the Franchise Tax Board. And they put this up and they put all this information up, like, you know, Donald Brenner, whoever it is, you know, owes $2 million or et cetera. And I remember when I was um, an expert on the Gilbert Hyatt case and they put on the internet, the Franchise Tax Board put up how much he owed and it ended up he owed zero. Oh, but meanwhile, they made him look like a, ta you know, like a criminal sure. that he so a lot of these things when I see this and it was on the front page of the Orange County Register about these 250 people and of which there were 50 of them from Orange County and they listed those people's names and how much they owed. And I thought, you know what, that isn't even proven that they owed. But I know this because I was involved in that. But 
This is another thing that they do that to try and get the leverage to get these people to pay just to get mm-hmm. their name down. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, I wanted to back up just a little bit about the situation of, of this rape victim and, and uh, that I mentioned earlier. Right. And you mentioned, you know, when you go into court and you have an attorney, it's so important that you find an attorney who knows about the opportunities for stealing the record or portions of the record. I, I'm just amazed at how many individuals contact us, and I, and I will ask, did your attorney tell you about the opportunity to seal, or did the judge give you this? It's, it's such you know sensitive information that's being exposed here. And they say, no, I never heard about it. And they can redact sensitive information. Yes, they can redact it. That's and that's better. For, yeah, yes. and that's better than sealing, because I have to tell you, when I see that somebody wants to seal a record, the clerks still have access to that. There's a lot uh-huh. of people, when, when it's sealed, a lot of people still have access, uh, access to it. And if the case is ever open, that's unsealed. And so I don't even like sealing that information. And if you have sensitive data that, and, and I've seen this, and it's against court rules, but a lot of times people will still put in the social security number, the entire social security number, or they'll put in account numbers and all this financial information about people, especially in divorce. So, you know, you need to get that redacted. Yes. absolutely redacted before you even file it with the court. So it is important. And I, in fact, I'm doing a program for a bunch of attorneys that they don't even think about these privacy issues. They're going to have to start teaching that in the law schools because there's a difference between confidentiality and privacy information. Yes, know? absolutely. I, I agree with you about the need for this kind of information in law schools because I, I am shocked, and I'll repeat myself, at how many individuals tell us that their their attorneys just never brought it up. What about online auctions like eBay? Um, do you participate in them? What do you think of those? Well, you know, I don't. I, I, I actually do take advantage of online shopping. I, I, I love it. But, you know, my answer to that, as we've been talking about, and that is use a credit card. Um, and, and, of course, use uh, shop with, I think, the, the major merchants, especially those who have been doing online uh, merchandising and selling for for a long time. But auctions, I, I'm not a participant. It's it's not that I don't want to. It's just I don't have time. But we we do have some tips on on, on online auctions and ways to protect yourself. Um, uh, there are lots of different kinds of fraud, but one, what, one type of fraud can occur when the seller doesn't ship what you purchased or the product is not uh, as good as, as was promised. And this is a particularly frustrating type of fraud to deal with. Um, and, and, you know, the online auctions, the big ones, have um, information about the sellers. And so, of course, it, it pays to, to check out the seller before actually, uh, you know, signing on the dotted line and buying something. And then uh, our, our tried-and-true tip of the day, and that is use a credit card. Yes. Um, and, and don't use a, a, a debit card. But one thing is don't use wire transfers to pay for something from an online auction site. Um, and the other thing is don't, don't allow the buyer to send you a check for more than the amount of the product and then ask you to wire back the difference. That right. is a sure sign of fraud. Exactly. Um, and it's virtually impossible to get your money back. Um, so never, never, never accept a check. For more, and well, maybe you shouldn't accept checks anyway. But just don't accept a check for more than the cost of the product. Um, even if that bank clears clears the check and deposits the fund, uh, it doesn't mean the check is legitimate, and those funds will be taken away from you uh, as as the bank becomes uh, aware of the fact that it's it's not a good check. Right, right. 
Let's talk a little bit about cloud computing because I know you've done speaking engagements on this. I know that this is a very huge issue and people mm-hmm. don't really realize that we're all doing cloud computing. Even Gmail is cloud computing. And, yes, it is. Uh-huh. You know, and I even have cloud computing in that my backup is cloud computing. You know, I back up in the clouds, which scares yes. me to death, but I do it. So why don't we talk about those risks? Because I'm scared and I want to hear what you have to say about it. <laughs> well, I guess I'm probably a little old-fashioned on that issue as well. I know that's where we're going um, in, in, our, in, in this world of online services. Um, cloud computing is when computer applications are run uh, not on your own computer, not on your own server, if you're, say, in an office situation, but it's on someone else's server and it's accessed via the Internet. So instead of running a program or, or an application or storing data on your own computer, um, this is all done at remote service, servers that are connected to your computer through the Internet. Um, and you mentioned Google. There's Google Docs, uh, you know, an email service like Gmail. Uh, Google Docs offers word processing, spreadsheets, and storage. And these are all out there in the cloud. So you can – and it's great for collaboration. I hate to say it. You know, they're like so many things, there are a bunch of – really positive aspects to it, but there are also the negatives. Um, let's say you're collaborating, uh, collaborating on something with individuals who might be spread across the country. Well, you know, you could all work on a document that's uh, in the cloud, um, much easier than sending it around to everybody, making sure they've got the most recent version. And, uh, you know, you've probably worked in committees before uh, and just sent documents around. Uh, it's, it's not an easy thing to do, so that's an obvious plus. But um, you do lose a bit of a degree of control over the sensitive information that you might have in a cloud situation. The responsibility for protecting that information, say, from from breaches, from hackers, dishonest uh, insiders, even subpoenas, all that falls into the hands of the hosting company rather than you. Um, And and that hosting company might actually have less motivation to protect that information against disclosure. Yeah. So you've got to, you know, check out, if, if you are going to be going this direction, check out that cloud company very, very uh, carefully. Find out what it does if, if, say, there's a subpoena for information that's in the cloud. Do they inform you or do they just go ahead and hand over the data? So reading the privacy policy and the terms of service of that hosting company is, is just really important, especially if it's sensitive information. Exactly. And I worry about even, you know, all these hackers getting into that and, and my stuff getting stolen, you know, and, and mm-hmm. destroyed. Or what if the place where the cloud is breaks down? You know, I'm kind of depending on this backup for me, for example. I mean, I back up my stuff as well to have a double backup, but I really am beginning to really rely on the cloud mm-hmm. for all my stuff. And I think a lot of businesses are starting to do that what if China or some other company country wants to really destroy us economically? All they have to do is really get into the cloud, right? That's right. That's right. In fact, um, that could very well happen. I mean, how do you know the um, if you're signing up for a cloud service, where where is that company located? Do you really know? That's so, uh, sure, yeah, all the, those are very, very big issues, and, and I don't think that we've got the, the legal infrastructure today to deal with, with those, some of the, the things that you and I have just been talking about. So, Beth, we have a few minutes left, and I I am a little bit depressed about privacy right now. <laughs> <laughs> what, is the pro- what is the prognosis for the future of privacy? Do we have any left here at all? 
yeah, I'm kind of depressed too, but I, I, <laughs> I've got to go to work every day, and and and, and uh, I, I try to to keep on the positive side of things. But we we use a definition here of privacy that guides our work, and that is the ability of the individual to control what is being done with their personal information, and, and that's what our our fact sheets are are all about. Um, but as we've mentioned in this program, managing our own privacy really is a time-consuming process, and. and you you have to be ever be vigilant and and sometimes even a little bit obnoxious. <laughs> uh, I hate to say it, but um, you know when companies ask you for your personal information, you you should always ask you know what do you need it for? Uh, how are you going to secure it? Am I legally required to provide it? Um, if they're asking you say for your social security number, you might say, well, will you accept my driver's license number instead? And you'd, you'd be surprised how many will say yes, but they won't offer you that option right off the bat. Um, you know, you can always, in certain situations, I shouldn't say always, but in many situations, you can take your business elsewhere if you don't like their privacy policies, their terms of service. But again, most people don't have the time or the inclination to, to read those, those, those policies that are written in such complex language. Um, and in some cases, you don't even have a choice. I mean, look at, for example, cable companies. Uh, oftentimes, you only have one choice. Uh, or look at your doctor's office. You have a favorite doctor. You don't want to go to another. They're demanding your Social Security number or, say, your dentist. And they, they say flat out, I won't serve you unless you give me the Social Security number. And I can't tell you how many complaints we've gotten from individuals on that one. So it's tough. I mean, we've talked about having to be your own privacy manager all the time. But the other thing people can do, and it's just really important, is making sure that their state legislators, their federal legislators know that you want your privacy protected through strong laws and regulations. If if our policymakers don't hear from us, they're going to think that people really don't value their privacy. And to be honest with you, that is becoming more and more the opinion of a lot of policymakers. They just don't think people care, that they want convenience over privacy. So it just behooves all of us um, to... To, to be strong in terms of our own, the way we protect our own information, but also get in touch with those uh, policymakers on the state and federal level and the local level um, and let them know that this is important to us and that we demand that we, we have the kind of protection that our personal information deserves. You know, I think that is so important what you're saying to really demand that. And I think we've seen recently like the brouhaha with Facebook, right, and Google, right. that when people start getting upset and you can use the Internet. I mean, we've talked about all the wonderful things of the Internet and all of the dangerous and insidious things that can happen on the Internet. But at the same time, there's blogs. And when people start really talking about these kinds of things and it gets out there, all of a sudden, you know, Facebook that was really violating privacy, all of a sudden they have to go before Congress and the Federal Trade Commission. Mm -hmm. So well, I what, th yeah. One of the things we do, and I have a feeling you do it too with the people you serve, is even though it's counter, it's counter to privacy, people who we talk with who really have a compelling case and, and they seem like they have an activist spirit, we sometimes will ask them, how would you feel about uh, enabling us to put you on a list of people willing to be interviewed by the media or willing to to testify at the at the state or the federal level, and you'd be surprised how many jump and say, jump up and say yes, I want to do that, even though it means you know more violation of their privacy. Um, so what we need are people who've been affected directly, um, getting in touch with their policymakers. I mean, when people like well me and, and my colleagues and you. 
um, sometimes there's a rolling of the eyes and saying, yeah, yeah, this this is just kind of their own thing. But when they hear from those directly affected by by terrible privacy violations, um, they they tend to pay more attention. Well, that's don't you remember? I mean, you were my whole better. Um, you were my best PR agent because <laughs> I was one of those people who was a victim. And then you said, Mari, will you be willing to talk to the media and testify? And I was so angry. I said, yeah, this is a good opportunity for me to tell it like it is. So, That's right. So you're right. It's it's really important. And I do the same thing. I'll say, are you willing to speak to the media? Because they want to know. They want to see a real face. They want to hear a real story. They want to see. Because we could talk about these privacy issues. But until you hear the exact story of what happened and what the people felt like and the emotions behind it, mm-hmm. they just don't get it. They just no, they don't. don't and, and and so sometimes we do, even though it's. It, I I feel kind of guilty when I ask people this because I'm saying, hey, you want to, you you just experienced something horrible. Now do you want to tell the world about it? But again, you'd be surprised how many people willingly say yes. I really want to to make a change. Well, you're asking them to opt in. You're not saying I'm going to tell your story. You're you know, you right. always <laughs> and I know you're very good about that, and I've learned that from you, and I'm very good about that too. I always say if you want. You know, if you're willing to talk to the media about it, you authorize me in writing. You know, send me an email. I authorize you to share this story mm-hmm. with whomever you think is important to get the word out that this should not have happened to me nor anyone else I know. So I think people, I one of the things about being a victim of any kind of of a crime or of a of a privacy invasion is you want to be able to do something. And if you really want to do something to help yourself and other people, it's important that you get, to, you know, that you write to Beth or to me and you let us know and you we can help you to find the right people. Beth knows a lot of people in the media and she can share these stories. And when she testifies or when she speaks at important uh places like the Federal Trade Commission, it's important to know exactly what's happening so that we can make those changes. Well, we are just about out of time. I'd love for you to give your website again. And we are, are the time just flew. We didn't even get to talk about medical stuff. <laughs> I swear we could have a two-hour talk and it probably wouldn't be enough, Beth. You're wonderful. Well, thank you, Mari. Well, and thanks for the opportunity. I really appreciate it. Um, okay, so our website is privacyrights.org and privacy rights is all one word. Um, and you might want to sign up for our uh, mailing list. We We send out, I'd say, every... Three to four weeks, we send out alerts, which are usually they're short, two to three pages long on on just one topic. And sometimes it's you know it might be online shopping at Christmas time, it might be seasonal. Other times it might be based on things that are happening in the news. But um, if you want to get just kind of a, a jolt of, of of information on one topic, sign up for our mailing list. Oh, I get your newsletter and I love it. You just you recently had a great one on social networking that Rainy did. So. Absolutely sign up for their their wonderful newsletter at privacyrights.org. And, and you're tweeting now, too, so people can follow you on your tweets. That's right. You can go to our website and, and get the information on our <laughs> tweets. We're, we're not the kind of tweeters that send out six a day. It's usually a couple of weeks, so you, you, you won't be overwhelmed. Well, you are the very best, and we love you very much, and we are so grateful for all the wonderful work that you do at the Privacy Rights Clearinghouse. Thank you so much, Beth. Well, thank you, Mari. Really appreciate it. We'll have you back again. You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. I'm Mari Frank. Stay private. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.